Uh, well, we really are so glad that all of you decided to show up here today, uh, particularly if this is your first time walking through the doors of Grumlaw. We don't take that for granted. We all are, are really, really thankful that you would decide to make Grumlaw a part of your week. Uh, we're continuing, as mentioned, into part two of this series called Travel Light, where we're talking about letting go of some of that stuff that, that holds us back, that, that weighs us down, that, that ultimately holds us back from living the life that God so desperately wants for you. And as mentioned last week, if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, this is in fact the best life available to you. That this is the life with the most purpose, the most fulfillment, a life with true contentment, something that every single human being in this room, Christian or not, that we are indeed all after. And so last week we talked about letting go of distractions. Uh, in fact, it was one of my favorite messages that I've ever prepared and ever given on a Sunday morning. We got a ton of positive feedback on that. And so if you were not here for part one last week, please make sure that you go online to grumlaw.com messages. You can either listen or watch the messages there or find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcasts. But one of the things that we're going to be continuing to remind all of you throughout this series, and I'll certainly be reminding myself of this because I definitely need to be reminded of this, is that this world is not our home. I mentioned this last week, and I think that we can all relate to it. As we travel through our lives, it is amazing how much of the wrong kind of stuff that we end up accumulating. So, so how do we let that stuff go? That, that stuff that, that is holding us back, that stuff that is ultimately keeping us from the life that God wants for us. It's obviously something that is far easier said than done. Now, I have a bit of a surprise for all of you right now. Um, Christmas has come early. I'm gonna give all of you a Christmas treat. The ushers are gonna be passing these out right now. This will probably take you back to your middle school days. I'm guessing probably likely the last time that you have ate one of these things. This is gonna be a bit of a bonding moment for us right now. Uh, the ushers are passing out warheads. Does anybody remember warheads? Anybody never had a warhead before by a show of hands? Oh, you are in for a real treat. Now, here's the deal. You can take them out of the wrappers right now. Take them out of the wrappers. Do not put them into your mouths yet, okay? So everybody get your warheads. I got mine up here. I'm going to participate as well. Get your warheads. Don't put them in your mouth yet. Again, bonding moment. Now, listen, we can't force all of you to participate in this, but we can heavily recommend it. You can hold the person next to you accountable. If they're not eating it, just elbow them. Be like, don't be a dirt ball, okay? Everybody got their warheads? Okay, everybody hold up your ward heads. Everybody hold them up and on the count of three, we're gonna put these into our mouths at the exact same time, okay? Like big moment for us as a church. All right, everybody got them out. I see some reluctant people. Everybody has eaten one of these things. One, two, three, into the hat. Oh my gosh, way worse than I thought. Keep sucking them. Okay, I'm gonna cheat. I gotta preach here for the next 25 minutes. So you guys just keep consuming those things. now. <laughs> Your guys' faces are really great right now. Now, right after you eat a warhead, oh my gosh, it's terrible. Right after you eat a warhead, or anything sour for that matter, it's probably not a great idea to grab a glass of milk, probably not a good idea to drink a Coke, eat a bowl of cereal, grab a slice of pizza. In fact, it's probably not a great idea to eat or drink anything. Because that sour, that, that bitter taste, it just will not go away. The bitterness, as some of you are experiencing right now, it lingers. When a sour taste is left in our mouths, both literally and figuratively, it's hard to just let it go. It's hard to just quickly get rid of it. 
When my wife and I uh, bought our first home several years ago, we bought a home out in Howell, uh, Michigan. It was kind of out more in the sticks. It was a little bit more out in the country. Uh, and I don't know about you, but for me, when, when I've bought homes, one of the first things that I make sure is going to happen is that, that internet is like provided basically right away. And it was even more important at this house because you didn't get particularly good cell phone service. Uh, you couldn't really do anything, as you find in this world, without the internet. And so I made sure that the day that we were going to move into that house, uh, that the internet was like ready to rock. And so, as a lot of you know, they don't really send out technicians anymore, right? They send out like those self-install kits, which seem really easy, right? It's just like plug in a couple things and you should be ready to rock. So I followed the instructions on the box perfectly. I plugged everything in. And even though it was saying the internet was up and running, even though I was getting a Wi-Fi signal and I could connect my devices, it wasn't working. It was as if like the internet wasn't working at all. And so I literally haven't moved in a single box into this empty house yet. And here I am fidgeting with the internet. And so I get on the phone and I call the customer service and I, I was on hold that day for about 40 minutes, if memory recalls. I finally get through to a human being. I explain to them my issue. And then for the next 45 minutes, I spent my time running around the house and plugging, plugging into different outlets and troubleshooting, which I'm like pretty sure like, and convinced that they were just doing that to mess with me. Of course, it didn't actually work. And 45 minutes later, they're like, you know what? We're probably going to need to send a technician out. I'm like, yeah. That would be great. I kind of wanted you to do that here on the front end. They're like, okay, well, the earliest that we can get somebody out to your house is about a week. And I'm like, no, that's not going to fly. This is precisely why I made sure this kit was here today. I need internet for my job. I work out of my house. Like, this is important. And so they elevate it to a supervisor, and they tell me, okay, we can get somebody out to your house in 48 hours. And I was like, okay, I guess good enough. So the first two days that we moved into this house, it's the middle of June, I would get home from work. I'd eat dinner with my wife, and then I would proceed to drive five minutes up the road where I had better like signal on my cell phone. I'd turn my phone into a hot spot, and for between like one and two hours, I would sit in my vehicle uploading documents all the time, getting so angry because I'm like, I'm sitting in this hot, annoying car. I have this home office. How come I can't use it? So 48 hours later, the technician comes out and he fixes it, or, or so it seems. It, it works for like three days, and then the signal starts falling off again. It would go from like 60 megs a second to like half a megasecond. It was like I was rocking dial-up all over again. And so I get on the phone. And so this went for like three months where like every three days I was calling this internet provider like your product isn't working. The reason I tell you this is to this day, when somebody mentions the name of this particular internet provider, it still makes me cringe. I immediately go back to those moments where I was nervously pacing around in my living room, mumbling things to myself, looking at my phone going, how am I still on hold? Shouting into my phone, into like the automated system, representative, representative. We have all been there and done that. The bitterness didn't go away. It continues to linger. We're going to direct our attention today. Uh, to a passage of scripture that we find in this letter called Hebrews. Uh, it's a letter that we find in the New Testament, which is kind of the second half of the Bible. Uh, it, was a it was specifically written to these early Christians that were living in Rome. Now, the unique thing about these Christians is they were facing heavy, heavy persecution for their beliefs in Jesus. And this letter was written as this form of encouragement to kind of like, hey, stay the course to these people who had put their faith in and were now living for Jesus. And here in the 12th chapter, it says this. It says, work at living in peace with everyone, N not just some people, but, but work at live in peace with everyone. You have to understand that this was like a particularly daunting task because again, they were facing so much opposition. They were facing so much persecution. 
That they were being told, hey, you, you have to live at peace with everyone. And then he continues and he says, and work at living a holy life. How many of you have found that, that it takes a little bit more effort to live at peace with certain people? Okay, don't point to the person next to you. It's not exactly like a level playing field. And then he goes on to say, and work at living a holy life, which simply means a set-apart life, a, a life that is different. The, the, the writer recognizes that this is something, if you're going to work to live at peace with literally everyone, it's not going to come natural to you. If you're going to live at peace with everyone, it is going to take some serious effort on your part. This is not the norm. Most of the people that you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis are not seeking to quite literally live at peace with everyone. They're trying to live at peace with just like a handful of people. But, but wouldn't you agree when you think about this, that the most admirable traits that you see in other people, that you inevitably want more of for yourself, are characteristics that don't typically come natural to you. I spoke about this last week where I observed this father at a restaurant recently and he was just showing such patience to his young son who had special needs. And, and I sat there, and I think part of the reason that I was so captivated by this father is because as I watched him parent his son, I wanted that so badly for myself. I, I wanted so badly to be able to show that type of patience to my own children. I've still yet to meet that parent that, that patience was just something that they were naturally born with. Now, no doubt, certain people have more patience than others, but no parent has enough God-given patience to win like parent of the year. Impatience is, in fact, what comes very, very naturally to us. Patience is something that you strive towards. Patience is something that you build up. And the same could be said about living with peace with everyone around you. It's not the norm. It takes practice. It goes against the grain. But universally, Christian or not, when you see this in other people, when you see people that almost have this uncanny ability to live at peace with everyone around them, it's definitely something that we want for ourselves. The writer continues. He says, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. I, I'm absolutely convinced that one of the greatest tools that the enemy wants to use against us to destroy relationships, to poison hearts, is, is exactly what the writer is alluding to right here, a, a root of bitterness. See, see, God, your heavenly father, your creator, he wants you to love. In fact, in this entire book that we call the Bible, and if you're new to Christianity, pay attention to this. This entire book that we call the Bible, it could really be summarized with four words. Love God, love people. Love God and love the people around you. That's it. But see, the enemy, he seeks to destroy love. He, he seeks to destroy relationship. God, he wants us to grow in our trust in him because he knows that as our trust grows, our faith grows. And as our faith grows, our intimacy with him grows. And we begin to have what could actually be a relationship. And then as you go down the line, you're gonna be more willing to take these steps of obedience because you have all these tangible occasions that you can point to in the past where you have seen God come through where you have seen his faithfulness prevail again and again and again. But the evil one, he seeks to destroy intimacy. 
He wants to destroy trust. He wants to plant these seeds of doubt. He he wants to establish these roots of bitterness because he knows that once that root is established, there is no chance that the relationship is gonna grow. And again, Christian or not, you know that to be true. There isn't a single relationship that you can point to in your life where it has grown on the heels of bitterness. And and you guys, the evil one, he, he is so clever about this. He plants all these little tiny seeds of offense, hoping that just a couple of them will grow into these roots of bitterness. And, and it often starts out so incredibly petty. It's like a friend that, that used to always be the first one to comment and, and like your posts on Instagram. And then one day you realize like, huh, she, she hasn't been commenting lately. And then you dig a little bit deeper and you find out that she hasn't even been liking your posts lately. And, and then you dig even deeper and you find out that she has unfollowed you relationships have been destroyed over far less. Or, or, or maybe it's a person that you shoot a text to and, and you're hoping for a quick response and they have their read receipts on. It says that they saw it. It's like red at 8.39 p.m. And you even see the little magical bubbles pop up for a second. You're getting excited. They're gonna reply back and then they vanish and you never hear from them. Like what is up with that? That aunt, that uncle, that grandparent, that always seems to spend less money on your child around the holidays than that other grandchild, than that other niece, than that other nephew. But, but maybe it's far more significant. You, you know he lied. You, you know that she has been talking about you behind your back. Maybe it's a relative that's always critical, how you raise your kids, how, how you spend your money, where you go to church. A person that takes advantage of you, misleads you, betrays you, this, this seed of offense that the evil one is hoping gives birth to this root of bitterness. Here's the bottom line for today. I'm just gonna kind of give it to you here on on the front end. You you can't control what people do, but you can control how you respond. And, And there's definitely a timeliness to this message given its proximity to the holidays. Because unfortunately, for a lot of people that are sitting in this room today, the most notable bitterness in your heart is directed at a family member a friend, a person that you happen to see a whole lot more of this time of the year. Or for, for, for a lot of us, the evil one is gonna be looking to plant that seed of offense sometime here over the next month. Here are the problems with, with bitterness, just in case you're not convinced. Uh, number one, bitterness has, has a dangerous root. J- just like a, an offense, the seed of offense can grow into this root of bitterness, bitterness also grows. Watch out, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. See, see, most people, even that individual that has offended you, even that person that has hurt you, they don't even know that the bitterness is growing. No, no, we find out that that bitterness exists after the blow up. When that bitterness has now been festering for months, for years, and then it comes out usually at a less than ideal moment and usually in a less than healthy manner. Uh, when I was in my uh, senior year of college, I lived with five of my, uh, of my closest friends all under one roof. And looking back now to my senior year of college, there were a lot of choices that we made that were less than intelligent. And uh, one of those choices we made about halfway through our our second semester, uh, me and my buddy, uh, Joel, we decided that we'd go to the fireworks store and buy some firecrackers. And 
pretend we were back in third grade again and like just go blow up stuff around the yard. And about nine, 10 o'clock came around and we still had a couple packs of firecrackers left and we got this genius idea. Well, one of our roommates, his name was Curt, Curtis, he, his, his, his uh, room was right inside the back door of the house. And we thought, wouldn't it be hilarious because Curtis always goes to bed so stinking early if we threw some firecrackers into his room and startled him and woke him up. And then I was like, no, that's not a good idea because when you let off firecrackers, they kind of make a mess and they shoot all that debris all over the place. We need to get a shoebox and do the right thing. So let's light the firecrackers, put them in the shoebox, still make all the noise, but none of the mess. And we're like, how, how could this possibly fail? And so there we are going and gathering the shoebox. I had my buddy light the fuse so we were both accountable in this whole act. Uh, I, we dropped him into the shoebox. I opened the door very quietly. I slid the box right next to his room. I pulled the door shut and then we giggled as we ran around the house like schoolgirls. And then we hear, bah, 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 you know, the, the firecrackers all go off. And we sneak back in the front door and we sit on the couch as if nothing has happened and other roommates are looking at us like, what have you just done? And a couple seconds later, we hear, Curtis is coming to the front of the house, and it's not a happy walk. Uh, We have awoken a grizzly bear from hibernation. And he comes in around the corner, and he had this intensity in his eyes that was like, yep, I know when it is time to fight or flee, and I am going to flee. And so I promptly jumped over the back of the couch, and I ran out the front door. And I'm serious. I was waiting in the front yard. I was like, if he comes out here, I got like a 10-yard head start on him. I will just run away from him. My buddy Joel, who was doing this with me, uh, he tried to stand his ground to pretend that he was going to be the tough guy. Curtis proceeded to grab him by the arms and throw him up against the wall and just started yelling at him. He's looking at me in the front yard. Get back in here. I'm like, oh, my goodness. We are going to ruin a friendship over this. Well, the next day. When tempers had finally calmed down, we, we had a conversation with Curtis. We apologized to Curtis. We're like, okay, Curtis, like, listen, I wouldn't be thrilled if somebody lit off firecrackers in my room, but you've lived with us now for like six months. I mean, it's like not out of the question. I mean, this is kind of par for the course type behavior. Like, why did you get that mad? And he proceeded to tell us, he's like, do you realize that because my room is right next to the back door that every single night one of you knuckleheads come in and wake me up? I literally, now for months on end, every single night, one of you come bolting in at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, oh, sorry, Curtis, we forgot that your room was in here. It's like, start to remember that I'm sleeping back here. Go in the front door. We had no idea what was happening underneath the surface. We, We just saw the trouble. We just saw the blow up. There's another letter that we find in, in the New Testament. It was written to the early Christian church in this area called Corinth. It was written by a guy named Paul. In the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, it's often referred to as the love chapter. It's probably the most common you know, chapter of scripture that you hear read at weddings because it just seems so fitting for a, for a wedding day. And, and Paul kind of goes on to describe all these different characteristics of love. And one of the things he says about love is love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Christian or not, don't you want to love the people really, really well that you're close to? Don't don't you want your wife, don't you want your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiance, your kids, your family, your friends to know that you are for them? Paul tells us that one of the greatest ways that you can love the people around you is by keeping no record of wrongs. But, but what does bitterness do? It's, it's not a trick question. Bitterness keeps detailed records. B- bitterness takes meticulous notes. 
Bitterness knows the date, the exact time, who was present, the lighting in the room, what you were wearing that day. It's insane. And you kind of smile and chuckle over that, but you know it's true. Because we have all been in these situations where someone has finally had enough and they blow up on you. And they're describing the offense in such detail that you're sitting there and you're almost impressed. But bitterness, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And the longer you let it live, the more it spreads. And wouldn't you know it, the harder it is to kill. So, so bitterness has a dangerous root and also bitterness produces a poisonous fruit. You dig in the rhyming this morning? Rhyming and warheads. We're going to pass out Mountain Dew and Axe body spray in a minute. We're going to pull an all-nighter. It's going to be great. Nope, that's a joke. Watch out. Watch out, the writer says, that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. The, the, the writer knew well that, that just one person nursing an offense, and when they allow that to live, and when they allow that to fester and grow into this root of bitterness, the collateral damage of that one offense has the ability to hurt and corrupt many. And every single one of you have experienced this. One bitter person can destroy a workplace. One bitter person can, can rip apart a connect group. One bitter person can divide a family. And, and if you're sitting here right now and you're thinking of that person, and you're already cleverly coming up with ways that you can slip this message to them without offending them, as you're like, he needs to hear this, she needs to hear this. Let me remind you that bitterness is one of the most difficult sins to see in the mirror. And here's why, because when you're bitter, you feel justified. It makes 100% logical sense in your mind. You, in fact, know that you are right. And if we're not careful, some of us will we'll celebrate the love of Jesus and we'll hate someone in our hearts. We'll, we'll receive God's grace and we'll fail to extend it to those around us. Will you take a moment right now and, and self-reflect and, and honestly ask yourself, do I have a root of bitterness? Am I holding a grudge against anyone? Am, am, am I carrying a hurt is there an offense that's currently growing into something more? It, it could be a brown noser at work. It, it could be a boss that doesn't seem to appreciate you, a, a friend that takes you for granted, a, a person that constantly criticizes you. Some of you, you're mad at yourself. There, there have to be people in this room that, that are angry at God. You, you cannot heal from that which you're not willing to even acknowledge. So, how do you kill the root of bitterness? To find the answer to this, we're gonna look at another passage from another one of Paul's letters to the early Christian church, this time to the early church in Ephesus, and thus it's called Ephesians. And Paul says here, he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, I personally, I love passages of scripture like this because not only do they present the problem, in this case, bitterness, and I think we can all agree that, that bitterness is a problem, but it also presents us with the solution. So how do we kill that, that root of bitterness? Number one, we can kill bitterness with compassion. We can kill that bitterness with compassion. 
As I alluded to earlier, the laws of heaven, that that which will ultimately be best for us, almost always stand in direct opposition to our human nature. Uh, Again, impatience, for example, comes very, very natural to every single one of us. Developing patience, that takes some work. Bitterness is a very natural thing. Compassion is is something we have to work towards, especially when we are being called to extend compassion to the very people that have hurt us, to the very people that have offended us. But as unnatural as it is, isn't it true that when you see this in other people, when, when you see people that are so extraordinarily compassionate, that is inevitably something that you want more for yourself One of the incredible organizations that we as a church have the privilege of partnering with is called Our Daughters International. Uh, It's an organization in Nepal that seeks to fight against human trafficking and specifically sex trafficking between the borders of Nepal uh, and India. Uh, It's an organization that because of your dollars, uh, we fully fund as a church a border station uh, between Nepal and India. And again, its sole purpose is just to take a fight against human trafficking. Uh, It's something we believe in as a church, even when it didn't really make sense in the budget. We're like, this is something that we want to get behind. And again, because of your dollars, it costs about $25,000 a year. Every single day between two and 10 women, and in most cases, actually young girls are saved every day. Two to 10 women today will be saved from being trafficked. And I never forget that one of the first conversations that I had with Ramesh, who's the director who started this incredible organization, uh, and he was just telling me about the, the horrors of sex trafficking. And he's going into detail that, like, honestly, I was sitting there, and I remember sitting at lunch just, like, getting sick to my stomach. And, and then I blurted out some Christianese phrase. I, I think I said something along the lines of, like, you know, Ramesh, as I think of these girls, I'll definitely be praying for them. And without missing a beat, he made eye contact with me. And I'll never forget this. He said, but, I was like, but what? He's like, but also be praying for the people that are committing these crimes. And I was like, what? Like, you just got done telling me these terrible things that they are doing. He, he every single day interacts with these young girls that have had unspeakable crimes committed against them. It's not just a phrase, sex trafficking. He knows the faces. And that guy is telling me, also be praying for the perpetrators of these heinous crimes. But see, Ramesh knows that one of the best ways to show compassion is to pray for the person that hurt you. And you can be guaranteed that that even if your prayers aren't answered, Even if that person never changes, you will. Your prayers, your prayers for others might not always change them, but it will always change you. It's probably why Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. See, see, when Jesus said these words, and unfortunately they've been manipulated over and over and over again, it wasn't a guarantee that that person was absolutely going to change. But he knew that if you made that your daily commitment, that if you began to pray for those who hurt you, at the very minimal, you would change. As you continue to draw close to God, you'll become more and more like him, growing more and more each day in compassion for the people around you. So we can kill that bitterness with compassion, and we can also kill that bitterness with forgiveness. Now, I have no doubt that, that there are probably people in this room that, 
when these ideas of, of, of just showing forgiveness to everyone, you could very well be thinking, but you have no idea what he, you, you have no idea what she did to me. If you knew my story, there's no chance that you would be sitting up on that stage right now advocating for this. And to a certain extent, you are absolutely correct. I don't know your story, but I do know this truth. Again, it says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. I have no idea what offense has occurred against you, but, but I do know for sure what Christ has done for you. And not you in broad terms, but specifically you. And, and when you come to grips, what Jesus did on that cross for you, this is some of the most beautiful words that we will ever hear, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Not when we pulled our lives together. Not once we proved our loyalty. Not once we proved our love for him. Not once we got on our knees and we began to beg for forgiveness. But in the midst of our corruption, while we were still sinners, he died for you. And I'm telling you, when you come to grips with the beauty of that truth, holding grudges and, and harboring resentment, and taking note of offenses, bitterness, it, it all no longer becomes an option. My name is Andrew Collins. I'm 34 years old, and I'm a former police officer from Benton Harbor, Michigan. I was 25 when I lost my job. It was a case where I falsely accused somebody of possession of crack cocaine with intent to deliver, and that resulted in him getting 10 years in prison because of my lies. Uh, I ended up getting caught in February 08, and then Jamel was released a week after I went to jail. God has a funny sense of humor. Somehow, we end up in the same Jobs for Life program, and I just remember asking him for his forgiveness over and over and over. He kept telling me, stop, it's finished, it's forgiven. I feel like I need to do more, but he continues to tell me there's nothing more that I can do. So now as a pastor, I'm able to say to people, if Jamel can forgive me, then how can you possibly hold on to that grudge? So I have chosen that my past will be my platform. It will no longer be my prison. Jesus forgave you. That's awesome. Jesus forgave you freely. He gave you generously. He gave you absolutely. He forgave you entirely. He forgave you unconditionally. Do, do we have anybody that's, that's sitting here that is also a fan of the card game Euchre? Anybody else like, like Euchre? Eu Euchre is far and away my favorite card game. And in any given hand of, of Euchre, uh, what, is, what is the best card called? The, the card that basically wins a hand no matter what. Help me out. What's it called? Right Bower specifically, right? The Right Bower. And, and when you have that Right Bower in your hands, which will always either be the, the Jack of Hearts, the Jack of Diamonds, the Jack of Clubs, or the Jack of Spades, whatever got called up for that particular hand, you can't screw it up. You know that at least one of those hands is yours. You know that there's no way the opposition can take all five hands if you have that right bower in your hand. And very similarly, when someone has offended you, when someone has hurt you, and you're harboring that bitterness, you have the upper hand. 
And at any moment, you can choose to play that card. You can choose to play that right bower. You can trump anything else that they happen to bring up. But here is my challenge for you this morning. Will you let it go? Rather than, than forcing that person to relive it, Rather than continuing to rehearse that conversation in your mind as you drive to work, as you sit in the shower, will you choose to let it go? Here's the thing. I'm not asking you to let it go forever. I'm just asking you to let it go one moment at a time. In that moment where they start going down that path and you're real tempted to go, oh my gosh, I got him. Will you just, in that moment, just choose to let it go? Will you in that moment, when you start to have that imaginary conversation that definitely deserves a real conversation, will you nip it? And in that moment, will you choose to let it go? And, and here's the hunch that I have. As, as you let it go just one moment at a time, th th those moments will begin to have this sort of compounding interest effect on your life. And, and eventually, you won't even have to force yourself to do it. You'll just stop thinking about it. You'll just realize one day, like, oh my gosh, it's, it's gone. The, the, the bitterness has been swept away. And remember, for, for you Jesus followers in the room, we do this because it's precisely what Jesus did for you, and we are called to follow that example. For those of you that aren't sure about Jesus yet, maybe you ought to consider killing bitterness because undeniably it'll be better for the you and the yous around you. You, you cannot control what people do, but you can control how you respond. Let, let's choose compassion. Let, let, let's choose forgiveness. Because after all, that, that is precisely what your heavenly father did for you.